It's a privilege to be before you sharing God's word with you today. I hope that you have enjoyed worshiping the Lord through song and prayer and confession of our sins. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is an enjoyment to worship our God. It, there, I love uh, how John Piper emphasizes the fact that, that enjoying God forever, that our, the chief end of man is to worship God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever, and that we worship God through enjoying him, through being satisfied in him. So the prayer today is that we are satisfied in God. We are satisfied in the Lord as we meet here together to worship him today. Before we jump into our text for today, I just want to make a brief announcement. Uh, As you all know, or most of you, I suppose, know that uh, several weeks ago, we had a congregational meeting after our morning service where we talked a little bit about uh, the building options and space considerations that we've had with our current growth. And so what we want to do as elders is next Sunday, we want to have a follow-up meeting to that. Probably not as long, it'll be a little shorter, but we just want to put that out there for you all that next Sunday after the service, we'll have a, uh, a congregational meeting to discuss where things stand currently with that. So today we come to the final sermon in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So please go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5 to 7. You see that here on these posters throughout the the worship area. You're turning to Matthew 5 to 7 for the last time, hopefully not the last time, uh, in your own own life, but the last time today, I mean the last time uh, for for our corporate worship. Uh, We probably will consult this in the future for sure, but this will be the last of the sermons on this wonderful Passage, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Now, transitioning out of a series is really a bittersweet kind of thing. Uh, This will be the fourth, if I'm counting correctly, this will be the fourth series that I've transitioned out of. When I arrived, we were a little over two, well, about two and a half years ago, we were in John, and apparently uh, in total, the church spent about two and a half years in John. Uh, which is great. John's a good book. Uh, but when I came and we started in, in John 15, I started in John 15, 1, and we transitioned out of that. Uh, we then went into Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 4, that, that great nutshell teaching in the New Testament on the family. And then I transitioned out of that into Titus, and then transitioned out of Titus into the Sermon on the Mount. And it is always a bittersweet kind of thing, because on the one hand, It is a little sad to leave a passage that you've been in for so long. I think as a church, as a whole, it's I think it's a there's a there's a kind of a a sad component. I know especially as a preacher, someone who's been going through it in detail from week to week to week to week, it is a little sad to leave something uh, that you have been in for so long, and particularly something that has been so rich as the Sermon on the Mount. All of God's word is inspired. All of God's word from Genesis to Revelation is perfect and true and comforts and challenges and is beautiful. But there are certain passages in the Bible that are just, they just are just gleaming with with, uh, beauty. They are shining forth God's truth in particularly penetrating ways. And the Sermon on the Mount is certainly one of those passages. So it's, that's the bitter part. And then on the other hand, the sweet part is that it's always exciting to see what else God has for us in his word. Because the Bible is so broad and so deep that there's so much to cover, you can never cover it in a lifetime at, 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 a, at a deep level. You can never cover it all in a lifetime at, at a deep level. You see someone like John MacArthur who has done a commentary of every verse, of every book in the New Testament, of phrase by phrase, verse by verse commentary. And it's taken him, I think it took him over 40 some years to work through the New Testament in that way. So the scriptures are just so rich and so deep. And so we get to now move on to something else. And that will be beginning next week, we will start Advent, which are the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. And we will be looking at passages, various passages from Luke chapters one and two. That's what we'll be doing for Advent. So I think it's, I think it's very interesting that we here are at this 
this key moment in the life of Jesus. Here is the incarnate God, the incarnate Son of God, teaching, giving us a kingdom manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount. And now we get to go back to the, the before he was born. We have the king presented to us. He preaches the kingdom of God. He sits on a mountain. He presents what the kingdom is, the characteristics of kingdom living. He puts the kingdom out there before us, and then we get to worship the king. We get to celebrate the birth of this king for four weeks. So I think it's a fitting transition to go from the Sermon on the Mount to Advent. So today is the conclusion to this passage called the Sermon on the Mount. But in some ways, we have already been concluding for several weeks now, and you maybe have that feeling. You feel like, haven't we already finished the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, we've already concluded it, right? Well, the reason that you may feel that way is because for a long time now, we have been making, we've been moving towards the final conclusion as Jesus has been concluding. So let me give you just a few examples of how we've been moving already towards this conclusion. So chapter 7, and I want you to look at these as we're, as we're uh, opened up now to Matthew 5 to 7. So in chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, we get that passage, ask, seek, and knock. And what that tells us is that everything before that passage about praying to God, about asking God and seeking from God and knocking at the door to receive from God, that everything we've covered in the Sermon on the Mount really leans into that prayer to God. Because what we learn is that persistent prayer to God is the only way that the life outlined for us in the Sermon on the Mount is to be realized. Apart from prayer, apart from persistent seeking, asking, and knocking at the door of heaven, apart from that, there's no way we're going to live this Christian life. There's no way that we're going to be able to manifest the character of Jesus day in and day out. And so, chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, force us to go backwards and to consider that all of this is made possible through prayer. And then we had the next verse, which is, the golden rule, chapter 7, verse 12. And the reason that this was kind of a concluding text is because it summed up and boiled down everything that Jesus had been teaching up to that point. So we saw with the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5, verse 17, we saw that, that Jesus presents this main idea of righteousness. In many ways, the Sermon on the Mount is about righteousness. It is about the kind of life that is righteous. And so when you get to chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus is really summing up everything that he has taught up to this point, and he's saying, this is righteousness. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So we see that when we treat prayer, it's really a, a summing up passage, and when we come to verse 12 with the golden rule, this is also a kind of concluding verse. But then we came to chapter 7, verse 13, all the way up through verse 27. And we got two ways, two trees. This is where we've been for about the last month. We got two ways, two trees, two professions of faith, two houses. And this is kind of a concluding passage because it brought the entire sermon to a point of response. It brought everything that Jesus has been saying from the very beginning of chapter 5 to a kind of crisis point. When you get to chapter 7, verse 13, and Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. He is now calling us to action and calling us to respond to everything that has gone before. So all of this to say that it is quite natural for us to feel like we've been concluding the Sermon on the Mount for a while, because Jesus has been doing that. He has been moving us towards its close. But today, we come to the actual conclusion, the final conclusion to this portion of Scripture. As we come to the end of chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, we finish today this passage, this well-known passage called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you will please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. 
chapter 7, verses 28 to 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for his help this morning that, that by his grace, by the power of his spirit, that we would finish well. All of us, as we sit under God's word, preacher and those listening alike, that we would all finish well this morning in response to what we have covered in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this time this moment in time which you have sovereignly ordained that we would sit here, that we would be here worshiping you, that we would be here hearing these precious words of Jesus, considering this great teaching from our Lord. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to save sinners. We thank you that he came into the world as a baby, that he grew up, that he was submissive to his parents, that he obeyed your law from the earliest possible age, that he walked according to your statutes, that he was the righteous one who delighted in your law, that he meditated upon your law day and night. He was the one who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. Jesus alone the righteous one. And Father, today we gather in his name. We gather for his sake in his name, on his account, and we ask that you would fill us with his spirit, that you would make us like him, that you would count us righteous in him, that you would clothe us in his righteousness, that you would fill us with his spirit and make us to be holy like you are holy, Father. Make us to hate sin and love righteousness, Make us to love your word and to, to chew on it, to meditate upon it, to, to live in it, to build our lives upon it, our families upon it, our church upon it every day. Father, would you help us to leave the Sermon on the Mount well? Would your spirit just leave such a taste in our mouths today for your word and for more study individually of this wonderful passage from your word? God, thank you for the time that we have had here to camp out. What a blessing, what a privilege it has been to be able to gather together week by week and sit under this amazing teaching from our Lord Jesus. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Bless us now, we ask, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is Preparing for Our Descent. Preparing for Our Descent. Chapter 8 begins this way. You can look there at the beginning of chapter 8. <clears throat> when he came down from the mountain. So in chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, Matthew is giving us just a little bit of narration between Jesus' final words and his descent from the mountain. What we're looking at today are the words that stand in between Jesus's ending point of the Sermon on the Mount and the moment at which in the narrative of Matthew's gospel, Jesus begins to go down the mountain and to continue his ministry. And here we are. We've been on this mountain with the Lord for a little under a year. We started the Sermon on the Mount in January, on January the 29th of this year. So for just a little under a year, we have been, as a church, on the mountain with the Lord. And as we prepare to come down from this mountain, Matthew gives us three things to reflect on. So this will be our focus this morning. Three things to reflect on as we finish the Sermon on the Mount with these last two concluding verses. So first, the completed sermon. Second, the tremendous impression. And third, most importantly, the authoritative preacher. 
So let's begin first with the completed sermon. How do these verses begin? Look at the first clause in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings. And what I think Matthew is doing here is he's pushing us back, all the way back to the introductory words that he gave before the Sermon on the Mount. So as the Sermon on the Mount, this portion of the Gospel of Matthew begins, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Matthew says this, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, So what we have here are these words of Matthew on both ends serving really to hold together everything that Jesus says in between. You have at the beginning, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them saying. And then you have at the end that Jesus finished these sayings. And I think, you know, I've talked a little bit about the the red letter Bible that one of the mistakes that we can make if we have that red-letter Bible is we can think that the portions in red, which reflect the teaching of Jesus, Jesus himself teaching it, that that's somehow more important than the letters in black. And I think that's an important point. But one of the benefits of having a Bible where Jesus' words are in red is that you can see things like this very clearly. And so if you have a red-letter Bible, you can flip through now between chapters 5 and 7, and you can see that the red letters pick up in verse 3 of chapter 5, and they end in verse 27 of chapter 7. So it's very clear here that Matthew introduces these set of words, and he closes these set of words here at the end of chapter 7. All of this tells us that this is one unit of discourse. Everything that we've been looking at, chapters five to seven, this teaching of Jesus is one distinct unit. And it hasn't always been called the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters five to seven of Matthew's gospel were were just kind of part of Matthew's gospel, but it was with Augustine, the church father, Augustine of Hippo, that the name Sermon on the Mount came into use. So it was there that it first took on this name that we know it by, the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to listen to what Augustine had to say about the Sermon on the Mount at the very first words of his commentary. This is what he said. If anyone piously and earnestly ponders the discourse which our Lord Jesus Christ delivered on the Mount, as we read in the Gospel according to Matthew, I believe that he will find therein with, with regard to good morals, the perfect standard of the Christian life. He goes on to say this, the words which Jesus spoke on the mount give such complete instruction for the conduct of those who wish to live in accordance with them that those men are rightly compared to one who builds upon a rock. And then he says this, this discourse is thoroughly composed of all the precepts by which the Christian life is formed. So what exactly have we encountered in this Sermon on the Mount? You certainly can't conclude a series on something without going back and looking at what it is that we have covered. Now, there are many things we've covered in the Sermon on the Mount, many details, many convicting and glorious portions of scripture found in these three chapters. But if we could summarize everything that we've covered in the Sermon on the Mount, how would we do that? So I want to go through, I want you to go back to chapter five. I want to briefly go through and kind of put all of the pieces into a nice little summary for you. You can write these down. This is a a way of kind of working through the Sermon on the Mount as we're thinking through what have we covered over the last year? What is present in this renowned text. Well, first, chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. You will see in your Bibles that that is a distinct unit. That is the Beatitudes. And this is the basic character of a Christian. That's the first thing we need to see. The basic character of a Christian. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. And we see that at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that those who have this kind of character in them because of the Holy Spirit are those who are truly happy. So one of the things that we started with is the fact that only the Christian 
has the capacity to be truly happy. Now, we're not talking about happiness in a circumstantial, superficial kind of way. We're talking about happiness or blessedness in the true, deep, even philosophical kind of way. We're talking about a person who is in relationship with God and who, from God's perspective, is truly happy. And so we find throughout the Beatitudes the basic character of a Christian, and that takes us up to verse 12. And then in verses 13 to 16, we have the societal impact of a Christian. Jesus tells us that a Christian is like salt and light in the world. A Christian is a preservative against the decay in the world, and we've seen this in various spheres of society. In fact, you can go throughout the United States and throughout Europe, and you can see that much of the infrastructure of society itself has been built upon the Christian faith, has been built upon Christian values. Christianity and Christians within society act as a preservative against the decay of our world. And we're told that Christians are the salt of the, uh, the light of the world, that we, through Christ, reflect his light out into the world. So we see the societal impact of a Christian. And then in verses 17 all the way to verse 48, we have the ethical framework of a Christian. How ought a Christian to think about right and wrong, good conduct and bad conduct, righteousness and sin? How should a Christian think about these ideas? And I think Jesus gives us three words. You can jot these down if you'd like. Three words regarding the ethical framework of a Christian. Law, Christ, and heart. What Jesus tells us is that the law stands the law has not been toppled over. The law stands, but only insofar as the law is fulfilled in Christ, that Christ has fulfilled all of it, and that through Christ, the law of God is written on our hearts. And so that's where we get the idea of the heart, that true righteousness is not about a mere external act, but righteousness is something that comes from the heart. So we have the basic character of a Christian, the societal impact of a Christian, the ethical framework of a Christian. And then when we go into chapter 6, you'll see there at the very beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Here we have the religious practice of a Christian. One of the things that a Christian will be tempted with most is to go about his or her religious practices so as to be seen by other people and praised by them. I think we've all felt this before. The kind of pressure to perform. Even when we're in group and someone says, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, when someone says, hey, will you pray? And maybe they catch you off guard and you begin to pray. And you get done praying and you realize, I didn't pray anything. I didn't say anything to God. I didn't even have God in view. I wasn't making any comments vertically. I was simply saying things with a, an eye towards what others might be hearing or thinking. We see that in our religious practices. We see that in our giving. Sometimes we are tempted to give to someone so that they might think great things about us. They might think we are kind and generous and loving, that we are a good example of the Christian life. And we'll give something to somebody and then we'll be riding home maybe from doing that. And just deep down in our heart, that place we don't even talk about, we're, we're patting ourselves on the back. We're mulling over it. We're thinking through what we have done. So the funny thing there is that sometimes it's not even that we do our righteous deeds before others to be seen by them, but we do our righteous deeds so that we can mull over them in our own minds and congratulate ourselves. And that's exactly why Jesus says, don't let one hand know what the other hand is doing. And I think that implies for us that we're not to even give it any more consideration. When we do things, we move on in our minds. So chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, we have the religious practice of a Christian. And here in this section, we camped out for some time on the topic of prayer. It's very interesting to me that 
this passage on prayer, which is probably the most well-known in all of the Bible. It is the most well-known passage on prayer, maybe with the exception of John 17, in all of Scripture, is really couched within this larger section. So you may have thought that as we were treating prayer, that that was its own section in the Sermon on the Mount. That we got this, we got that, then we have prayer. But really what Jesus does is he treats prayer under the umbrella of the religious practices of the Christian. And then in verses 19 to 34, we have the daily pursuits of a Christian. Do you remember when we talked about worry? One of the points that we made very early on about worry is that it is not to be understood as this isolated problem. Worry is something that derives from storing up treasures on earth rather than storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Worry is something that derives from not trusting in the heavenly father and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so this section on the daily pursuits of a Christian took us all the way up to the end of chapter 6 with this topic of worry. And then we came into chapter 7. Those first 12 verses deal with the personal relationships of a Christian. We see Jesus telling his disciples not to judge one another. We see Jesus telling his disciples that as they relate to certain people, they need to practice a kind of discernment. That there will be people who are called dogs and pigs, those who trample on the truth of God when presented to them. Those scoffers, those apostates, those false prophets that Jesus says you should exercise some discernment. You should exercise some judgment in thinking through how you present the truth of God to them. And then, of course, Jesus deals with the relationship between the Christian and the Father. And we talked about how prayer is not this extra little thing that you put onto the Christian life. It's not as though you have the, the Christian life and you have these list of things that the Christian life entails. And one of those things is prayer. That's not the case. The way Jesus presents prayer to us, asking, seeking, and knocking, is that prayer is itself the relationship that exists between the disciple and the Father, between the Son of God, us as sons and daughters of God, and our Heavenly Father. That to simply be in relationship to the Father as a child is to be one who is always talking with Abba, to be one who is always in conversation with the Father. And then finally, verses 13 to 27 of chapter 7. This is probably one of the most convicting sections in all of the Bible. The proven genuineness of a Christian. This is where we see this issue of authenticity. Are we on the broad way or the narrow way? Are we a healthy tree producing healthy fruit or are we a diseased tree producing bad fruit? Are we those who build our houses on sand or do we build our house on the rock? So these are the topics that Jesus has treated throughout this sermon, the basic character, the societal impact, the ethical framework, the religious practice, the daily pursuits, the personal relationships, and the proven genuineness of a Christian. So today, we have before us the completed sermon. But there's a lingering question that I think is in the air for each of us, and here it is. One of the things that has been said repeatedly throughout this series, and one of the things that you will find repeatedly through the commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount over the last 2,000 years, Christians for 2,000 years have held up the Sermon on the Mount much like Christians have held up Romans and other passages like that, particularly high points in the Scriptures. One of the things that has constantly been noted is the foundational nature of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know about you, but as you think about the, the history of your Christian life, as you go back to your conversion to the very beginning, 
What role did the Sermon on the Mount play at that point? I can remember early on when I became a Christian, it was, it was as though God providentially sort of camped me out on, it was particularly Matthew chapter 6. I just kept encountering those words over and over again. They are foundational for the Christian. So here's the question. Will this foundational text be foundational for your life? Or will you just move on? Let me help you to think about it in this way. When we came to the Lord's Prayer, what's been historically called the Lord's Prayer, one of the things we talked about is the fact that Jesus says, pray in this manner, pray in this way. And what Jesus is saying to us is that the, the Lord's Prayer acts as kind of an outline or a template for prayer. That when we think about prayer, we should go to the Lord's Prayer and use that as a way of organizing our petitions to God. And sort of, as it's been described, it's a skeleton upon which we hang our own personal prayer requests. So let me ask this question. What about making the Sermon on the Mount the template for your Christian life from this point forward? God has graciously put before us for such a long period of time this marvelous passage of God's word, which is so foundational. All of Jesus' teaching in a nutshell. What if we were to put this passage as the foundation? From this day forward, as the template upon which we hang every practice, upon which we hang every interaction, every confession of sin, upon which we hang all of our understanding of how we relate to God and others, of how we think about ourselves, how we self-examine and monitor our own hearts. What if this became for us a template for all future thinking and doing as Christians? Another practical thing that I think we can do as we come to the completed sermon and we leave well is to consider what it would look like to integrate the Sermon on the Mount into your life every single day. So let me just make a, a little practical suggestion for how we could move forward with the Sermon on the Mount, integrating it into our lives. You know how long it takes to listen to the Sermon on the Mount on the ESV app <laughs> or actually anywhere? If you do not have the ESV app, you should get it. You probably have something else, maybe, I hope. But on your phone, you can get the ESV app, and you can listen to the Sermon on the Mount in 15 minutes. So let me just challenge us to do this. What if every day for the next month, for the next three months, for the next year, what if for 2018, now that we've taken all this time to study and to dig into the Sermon on the Mount, what if we said, I'm going to listen to the Sermon on the Mount in the morning, first thing, every day for the next year? 15 minutes. While you brush your teeth, on your drive to work. You know, I've talked with with folks who said, you know, I have a long commute in the morning, and so I really, I just get up and I have to leave very early to go to work. So I'm, I have trouble reading my Bible in the morning. That's understandable. So you listen to it. You listen to it on your way to work. Listen to the Sermon on the Mount. See, we have an advantage that the first hearers did not have. The first hearers had to descend the mountain. And what I mean by that is the people who listened to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount all those years ago had to leave the mountain when Jesus left the mountain. Here's the advantage that we have as Christians living today. We do not have to leave this mountain. We can continue to build our lives on these words of Jesus. We can continue to meditate upon and study and live out the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew points us first to the completed sermon, and now second, he points us to the tremendous impression. In these final verses, Matthew mentions a group of people that have not been mentioned since the beginning. We have this group of people called the crowds. At the beginning, look back at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says there, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And now we are told in chapter 7, verse 28, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
And this tells us that Jesus' primary audience, as we've talked about before throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is his disciples. Those are the people to whom he, he's directing these words. He's, he's looking, he's making con- eye contact with these disciples, these learners, these followers, these people who have begun to follow him. But all the while, the crowd is in the background listening to Jesus' teaching. They've been taking it in all along. Maybe the crowd has grown. So initially there was a, a large crowd and Jesus took some of the disciples out, a group within a group, and he began to teach them. And the crowd was there and it remained the same. But maybe people were kind of out on the margins and they began to drift closer and closer and closer to where Jesus was. But we know from these verses that the crowd has been listening to Jesus' teaching all along. And we see later on in Matthew's gospel in chapter 23, we see that Jesus was often attentive to the disciples and the crowds. So at the beginning of chapter 23, it says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. We know that Jesus looks out over the crowds. And what does it say about him? He has compassion on them. He looks out over these these crowds of people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus has compassion on them. And so all along, Jesus knows that the crowds are listening. They've been there hearing his words. And their response to all of it is nothing less than astonishment. Then Jesus said, here we see he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And before that, it says the crowds were astonished at his teaching. What is this idea of astonishment? To be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. This idea of being utterly overwhelmed, open mouth, wide open eyes at what Jesus is saying. And we see this response of the people in two other places in Matthew. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said this. This is what they said about Jesus when he came to his hometown. Did this man get this wisdom? Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? See, they grew up with Jesus. Jesus was just Joseph's son as far as they understood it. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Jesus is saying incredible things. He is evidencing incredible wisdom and he's doing incredible works. And the people are amazed because they grew up with Jesus. When did this start? How did this happen? Where did this come from? And then we get in Matthew twenty-two thirty-three 33, that Jesus is engaging frequently with different religious groups. And there's this interesting story in Matthew 13 where there's these two groups of, of Jewish leaders who disagree with each other and they fight all the time. But when Jesus comes on the scene, they turn away from each other and start fighting Jesus. But there's this scene where Jesus is, is challenging the Sadducees. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And there's this scene where Jesus utterly silences the Sadducees. They're debating and and Jesus says something and they can't say anything more. And it says, after silencing the Sadducees, the crowd heard it and they were astonished at his teaching. So frequently throughout the gospel of Matthew, throughout Jesus's ministry, the people who are listening to him would be blown away. They would be amazed or astonished. But I want you to see what happened after each of these passages. Matthew 13 and Matthew 22. Matthew 13 goes on to say, and they took offense at him. They are amazed at him. They are astonished at what he is saying and what he is doing, but they nonetheless took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And it says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Astonished, amazed, and yet Jesus can say that they do not believe. 
Jesus can say that they were offended at him, still astonished, still amazed, but it doesn't go anywhere. And it won't be long after Matthew 22 that we'll read in Matthew 27. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Frequently, people were amazed at Jesus. Frequently, they were astonished at his teaching and his miracles. But frequently, it went nowhere. And I think this astonishment of the crowds, this tremendous impression that Jesus made on them, leads us to ask two important questions as we move away from the Sermon on the Mount as a church. Two important questions for each of us. First, are you amazed? Are you amazed? Do you stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene? Are you astonished at him? Are you in a state of awe? Let me, let me put this out there for you. If as we have gone through the Sermon on the Mount, and you have just kind of been, been dry as a bone. You've taken it in, you've processed it a little, but there really hasn't been for you as you've encountered week in and week out through gospel community group, through podcasts, through coming and sitting here under the Sermon on the Mount, there really hasn't for you been any amazement, any astonishment, any sense of all. I think that is a reason to examine yourself. Because even, hear this, even in these superficial crowds, even among these people who would not go on to bear any fruit whatsoever, who would actually call for Jesus' death and call for him to be crucified, even among these people, they stand amazed in the presence of this Jesus. So the question is, have you stood amazed in his presence? And secondly, if you are amazed, if you are astonished, if you do stand in a state of awe at this Jesus, here's the all-important question that Jesus forces us to ask. Will it produce? Will it yield? How many times can we look back on our lives and see high points with the Lord, moments where we began to see him more clearly, Moments where we began to see what it is he wants from us a little more clearly. And then we've walked away from that experience with the Lord. We've walked away from that moment in time when God has spoken so loudly and so clearly. And we've just walked away. And a day later, a week later, a month later, a year later, it's as though we never heard it. It's as though we never met the Lord at all. So often. We are like that man who looks at his face in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he saw. So Jesus tells us, it is not just the hearer, it's the hearer who does. So all the amazement, let me say this, all as we leave the Sermon on the Mount as a church, all the amazement, all the astonishment, all the work that the Lord God has done in your heart over the last year is nothing if it doesn't produce righteous fruit. If it does not produce those who hate iniquity and those who love righteousness. Apart from that, it is as nothing. It is a breath in the air, lost, snatched away by Satan. As the seed falls on the road. So would we not be those who do not stand in awe? And would we be, not be those who simply stand in awe? So Matthew has pointed us to the completed sermon and the tremendous impression. But now as we finish up this morning, most importantly, he points us to the authoritative preacher. So why were the crowds astonished? at Jesus' teaching, one word, authority. Jesus taught them with authority. Look at verse 29. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know what that tells us? Jesus 
was not trained in their schools. Remember Paul talks about how he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, this very well-known rabbi. Paul had spent many, many hours, many, many days and years studying under teachers in a proper, formal, kind of rabbinical context as a Jew. It was like going to university for a while. And, and that is precisely what people like Paul and others had done. Jesus didn't go to school. He did not go to their universities. He did not sit under their rabbis. For all intents and purposes, he was entirely untrained. Yet he spoke with incredible clarity and authority and wisdom. Also, Jesus was disconnected from their cited sources of tradition. Remember, as Jesus is engaging with the interpretations of the law, he says the law and the prophets will not pass away, not one jot or tittle. And then he goes on to explain, you have heard that it was said. See, the rabbis of Jesus' day, they would sit and read quotations. They would sit and explain, so-and-so rabbi commented at this point, and they would read it. And they would go back and they would always lean on the authority of someone else. It was always a citation after citation after citation. Even the most prominent rabbis needed to lean back onto the tradition. Not Jesus. He didn't cite a single source. Except for the word of God itself. He was untrained in their schools. He was disconnected from their tradition. He spoke with his own authority. Can you imagine this 30-year-old man up on the top of a mountain with all of these people saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Can you imagine the incredible authority that he exuded to these people? I say to you. But probably the most important aspect of Jesus' authority is this. Hear this. This is very important as we close this morning and as we finish the Sermon on the Mount. It is not ultimately a happy life or a wise life or a moral life that Christ holds out to the listeners in the Sermon on the Mount. It is himself that he holds out. You need me, he says. In so many ways, you need me. See, not a single scribe would have said such a thing. It would have been blasphemy for a scribe or a Pharisee or any teacher of the law to have, to have even implied for a moment that the hearers, what they really need was me, me, me. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does time and again in the Sermon on the Mount. He holds out himself and he says, you desperately need me. He holds out himself as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the righteous one who fulfilled the law through his own obedience. He's the sacrificial offering who fulfilled the law through his own death. He is the promised Christ who fulfilled the law through his coming in every single way, whether in his own life or in his death or in his incarnation. He is entirely the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus presents himself as the fulfillment. He is the door through which we must enter and the way upon which we must travel. He himself is life. Persecution happens on his account. Works are to be done in his name. Eternal destinies hang on response to his words. We relate to God as father because he is his father. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents himself in this way. I like the way John Stott summarizes how Jesus presents himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He is portrayed as the prophet, the Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the Judge, the Son of God, and even God himself. So much so that Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly on this final passage, says that it is complete, ridiculous rubbish to say for a moment, that the Sermon on the Mount is just this little ethical treatise that can be lived out. 
What he says is that the Sermon on the Mount is so packed full of Christological doctrine, of truths about Jesus, that to take it as, as this ethical thing and to contrast that with Paul's theology or the doctrines of the New Testament is utter foolishness. Christ presents himself behind every phrase, every clause, every sentence, every paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, and he upholds his authority. This poor 30-year-old man on the side of this mountain in Galilee who himself is the Lord God. So this is Jesus. He puts before us himself. And Matthew here brings into our focus this preacher, this authoritative preacher who has spoken to you for a year now, who has spoken to me for a year now. So here's the question. Will we submit to his authority or will we be our own authority? Jesus calls us to serve him. He calls us to be his slaves. He purchased us with his own blood. Will we submit to this authoritative Lord? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for the Christ who preached it, through whose blood we are redeemed. We thank you for his lordship, that he owns us, and oh, what a blessed servitude it is, Father, that we would serve the one who gave up everything for us, who, like a, a loving husband, gave himself for his bride to purify her, to nourish her, and to present her to himself one day in perfect splendor without spot or wrinkle. This is our master, Father. Would we hear these words? Would we do these words? Would we be true Christian people? In the name of Jesus, amen.